Okay, this morning, let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians. Chapter 1, we're looking at verses 9 through 11. Let me pray. Father, thank you this morning for bringing us here together. We thank you so much that the Lord Jesus Christ died in our place, took the wrath of God for us, and made us right with you. Thank you that he shed his blood to wash away our sin and to give us his spirit. Uh, As we live and walk through this world, we have the word of God and the spirit of God living in us. And I pray, Lord, as that happens, make us people that are victorious in our life. Make us the people that are more than conquerors. Or even especially in the hard times in life, that we may display the very things uh, that the Spirit of God is working in us, in our very words and our attitudes. And Lord, even in, especially in the joy you give us because of this new life in Christ. Enable us to do that. Give us what we need. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. I want you to picture in your mind this morning that will help you illustrate how a disciple of Jesus Christ grows as a believer. I want you to imagine that in front of you is a pile of bricks. They represent biblical knowledge, which includes a bunch of true facts, information, principles, and observations. Next, I want you to imagine that you take the mortar and the sand and begin to make something out of them. Or imagine a truck pulls up to your home and drops off mortar, sand, and water. They represent wisdom that provide the means for you to take all their information and facts and think how to make something useful out of them. And now to imagine that you take the mortar and the sand and begin and, and the cement and you take all the individual bricks and you begin to build a structure. The process represents understanding. Understanding takes the bricks and the sand and the mortar and the water and constructs a useful structure. Now keep in mind and imagine that as we proceed into Scripture this morning, Paul is praying a prayer for the spiritual growth of the people that he is writing to. But this, of course, applies to us also today. We need the same things and this prayer for us today too. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul is writing to the Colossians, he's writing to believers in verse 28, and he says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You were in the world, and you were of the world, but now you are in Christ. You are in a different sphere than you were before, if you truly are a believer, Why does he admonish them in this way? Well, there were heresies threatening this mostly Gentile church. 
And apparently a religious system began to, to, to develop that combined elements of Greece, Greek philosophical speculation, Jewish legalism, and oriental mysticism, all kind of in one bundle. It's kind of a syncretistic type of mindset where they pull from here and here and here and make a religious system. That's what most religions do. So what's the matter with this religious system? Or for that fact, most religious systems, well, well, matter is what the matter is here. And false teachers had a dualistic cosmology. Everything spirit they thought was good and all matter is evil. So they thought God himself was perfectly good, spiritual, and totally disassociated from the material world because the material world was evil. In fact, they thought that God had not created the material universe. He would not pollute himself by such contact. So you can see that these false teachers, uh, as we look at Scripture, had a docetic view of Christ. And that word uh, doketo in the Greek means to seem or to appear. In other words, it mattered. If matter is evil in their mind, they thought, how could Jesus have a real physical body? And if matter is evil, how could Christ or Christians have a bodily resurrection? Docetism was a term for a more developed Gnostic sect which appeared in the early church of Christianity. And the error lay in their denial of the reality of Christ's human body. They believed that Christ's body was not really flesh and blood, but only a hallucination or a phantom, that Christ's body was purely spiritual and nothing of the human nature. Well, when we read Scripture, we find out that the Bible actually stresses the opposite. In 1 John, it tells us, By this you know the Spirit of God, and every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the what? In the flesh, right, is from God. And then John goes on also to say in 2 John, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and an antichrist. So false teachers had the idea that God, to become a man, was unthinkable. And yet, this is what's going on here in the Colossian church. They were in danger of clamping onto false teaching that would really upset their faith. They had really two misunderstandings, the false teachers, that led to a really a third misunderstanding and a wrong conclusion. False teachers say, the Colossians should practice the way, this way of living life as laid out by their, these people who had special knowledge. And that lifestyle was basically what all religious systems do. It was an ascetic lifestyle. They, the way of life is stressed by rigid regulations and abstinence of certain things and self-punishment. And then, of course... That was followed also with an antinomian lifestyle or without law. They had liberty in their flesh because the flesh was evil and the spirit was good to indulge in fleshly practices. And that's why 
you find in Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 23, that Paul writes and he says, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. You can't put up a bunch of rules and regulations and think it's going to regulate sin. It's not. The only thing that's going to regulate and help you to put sin to death is the Holy Spirit of God living in you, and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to give us the knowledge to be able to do that. And, of course, it ended up them worshiping angels. Why? Because angels were undefiled beings. They were spiritual, and therefore they were to be worshipped. So this is the way fullness is found by these false teachers. The old idea of spirituality is right out of Satan's toolbox of tricks with the goal to drastically distort true biblical doctrine and true, the true Christian way of living lives. Specifically, it was designed to rob Jesus of his central place, which this had a severe threat to the teaching of the redemptive work of Christ and the person of Christ, and then the practical everyday living on how a Christian should live his life. It threatened all of it. The Apostle Paul goes right to the source of truth, God himself, and he asks God for the Colossians. He prays for them that they would be able to put together the facts and information they receive from Scripture and run them then again through all of the Scripture that they knew at that time so that they could apply the knowledge of God's will to everyday situations with a spiritual boldness that can stand against any kind of false teaching or aberrant teaching. So the Christian's hope is that God's way is the best way. It is the only way of real peace, that the only way of real joy, the only lasting rewards are to be found in Christ. So now you are in Christ, and you have a new life because you are in Christ. And joy comes when growth in Christ takes place on a continual basis So Paul prays with great aspiration for the Colossians and for all Christians who would read this epistle that Christians would mature in Christ. Encouragement was also contained in the intention of Paul's prayer for the Colossians to proceed as they begun. You started in Christ, continue in Christ. Don't get set off track by false teaching. So, The proposition would be for us that the instruction included in this prayer is profiting for us to understand. And these, the two points that I will mention, so spiritual growth can be understood. And when implemented in your Christian life, you should stand and understand and experience an ongoing process of growth and maturity. If I were to ask you a few questions this morning, would you like to live in every way to the, uh, in a way that pleases the Lord in, every, in all things? What would you say? Yes, you would, right? Would you like to have staying power and patience and joy 
and thanksgiving every day? What would you say? Of course I do, right? Well, what we're talking about here this morning is something supernatural. Not everybody can have it. Only saints can have it, those who are in Christ. So because you have answered those questions in the affirmative, then let's look at the scripture this morning, because the first thing mentioned under the title of the prerequisites for growth. There's always prerequisites. When you go to college, you find out, I can't take the course I want to take until the third year. i got to take all these other courses before I get there. And so there's prerequisites for things. And so Paul, in verse number 9 of chapter 1, he is asking the Lord, the Father, for these Colossians, for all the believers who read this, he's asking for something to be given, and the verb indicates that Paul is asking for himself on behalf of the saints. He requests, his request is for enlightenment, which includes three prerequisites for growth. Well, the first one would be that of verse number nine, that you may be filled with knowledge. Notice what it says, for this reason also, verse number nine, Since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So here is the first thing. The word knowledge is really in advance on the term to know, and it denotes larger and more thorough knowledge, especially of an intense religious or moral knowledge. And what comes uh, to us, through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a knowledge, not just of anything, but of God's will. Now, where could you get that except from the word of God? You don't just happen to stumble upon God's will. You have to know what is the will of God. And here he is praying that they would have this knowledge which grasps and penetrates into the object of this knowledge, which is God himself. And so the source of it is a full knowledge of God revealed from the Scripture. It is not knowledge coming from human ingenuity or human tradition or even human education or even experience. It is not that. The knowledge here is not knowledge of all the other worlds or knowledge that is mystical that you can never really define. But this is knowledge of the will of God. What does God want for me? So it's clear, knowledge, heart-transforming, life-renewing knowledge will result in a deep fellowship with God. And if you notice that it is God who works this deep, full rich knowledge in us. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 25. It says, of this church, I, may, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, verse 26. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifest to who? To his saints. And then verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
See, what is the mystery of God's will that has been hidden but now revealed to his saints? Of course, it is salvation in Christ that is part of it, but it's also a fuller, more understanding, or as Ephesians puts it, a more direct understanding of what God has actually done. And if you go back to Ephesians that we read this morning, it's you go back past Philippians to Ephesians, if you notice in verse number 1, chapter 1, verse number 5, it tells us, what do we know, what, what knowledge do we have of God's will that God predestined us as sons? In Ephesians 1, 5, he says, he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. There's the will of God. And then Ephesians 1.9, God setting his grace upon us. It says in Ephesians 1.9, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. And then in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1, God giving his saints guaranteed inheritance, where it says, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So we are seeing here that the very package of salvation has always been the will of God. Before the world was created, it was God's will for this to work out in history. And you're part of that if you're a believer this morning, if you know him as Lord and Savior. And so we're to be filled with this knowledge and further knowledge that we grow in Christ. But you can't end with knowledge. Some people end with knowledge, and they get a puffed head, and they think they know everything, and they tell everybody that they're wrong or right or all this. That's pride, right? You can't just have knowledge, even knowledge of God. You have to have the next thing that comes. Look at back to chapter 1 of Colossians, verse number 9. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. He uses the word wisdom now. And this wisdom is really the ability to use knowledge for correct behavior and insight to life. Also, he uses the supreme intelligence of knowledge of God and Christ, where we see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all hidden in Christ. So here it means, wisdom means, it refers to a mental excellency, and it is the highest and the fullest knowledge anyone could have on this side of eternity, and embraces the faculty of intelligent which discriminates between the false and the true, and it is in opposition to fleshly, earthly, demonic wisdom. You know there are two kinds of wisdom, right? There is wisdom that comes from the earth, and there's wisdom that comes from above. Well, it was James who really told us very clearly about this wisdom where it says in the epistle of James, without turning there, let me read it to you. Who among you is wise and understanding, James says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. And then he says this, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. This wisdom is earthly and natural and demonic. 
so the world don't realize that you and I, before we became believers, this is the knowledge we had. We had earthly knowledge, we had natural knowledge, and we had knowledge we didn't know this that came from demons themselves. And demons are still dispelling knowledge. And then he goes on to say this, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. That is the wisdom that God's going to give us in the word of God. And that wisdom is going to bear certain unique characteristics within your daily life. In the very practical, everyday, day in and day out matters of life. God, because that's where we live, right? We live in a world, and life is hard. Life will always be hard. The Bible never says it's going to be easy. In fact, the Bible stresses life will be hard. So how do we live in this life that is hard? Well, after someone comes to Christ, the source of their wisdom is heavenly. Scripture calls it, back in Colossians chapter 1, spiritual wisdom. Practically, wisdom is the ability to use the best means in order to reach the highest goal, which is a life lived to the glory of God. That's the highest goal. That's our goal. And it is a reachable goal, but not on your own. No one can reach that on their own. And while considering this, the next prerequisite, keep in mind that knowledge needs wisdom. And then wisdom needs understanding. So it's not just having the facts and knowing what, and, and then the wisdom to be able to do it. But now understanding is something quite different. That wisdom is the mortar and sand and water which holds the individual bricks together that give potential to the structure. But without wisdom, you would not know how to take all the information and facts and make something useful out of them. That's why if you look at verse number 9 of chapter 1, he says there is something else that is given to us and that he prays for, that you may be filled with understanding. The last part of verse number 9, that not only are you to be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom, but with understanding. Now, now we have knowledge of God's will. We have wisdom that comes from heaven, and now we have understanding to be able to put it all together. You cannot be without any of these as a Christian. It is no mistake about the progression of words proceeding from the knowledge of God that understanding means insight or practical comprehension of needs and problems and principles, especially that of everyday life. The words refer to putting together facts and and information, drawing conclusions, and seeing relationships. That means, consequently, that knowledge, wisdom, and understanding should be translated very practically in life situations, such as he's going to say in this epistle. If you notice over to Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, he says, husbands, love your wives. And wives how to submit to their husbands. In verse 18, it says, Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Isn't that very practical? You say, well, that's 
Everybody knows that. No, not everybody knows that. And if you know it, you don't know how to put it into practice because you don't have no power to put it into practice. Christians have the power to put it into practice. So if you remember that if you have a pile of bricks which contain all kinds of facts and information to build something out of those bricks, you need wisdom, and to practically use what you made, you need understanding. See, a husband can know in his mind he is to love his wife, but if he never puts it into practice, it's pretty useless. And a father could know that he should not exasperate his children, but if he continues to do it, the knowledge is of no use to anyone. So in other words, he's comparing these practical ways to live to the false teachers. The false teachers, it's all about mysticism. You can't really define anything, right? You can't really nail anything down. No, I can nail this down. Love your wife. Well, let me, let me put that into practice. Husbands, submit to your, uh, your husbands. Put that into practice practice, right? Children obey your parents. Put that into practice. I can do that if I'm a believer. So Paul's desire included that the saints be saturated. He keeps using this word filled, 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 saturated, like a sponge. You can put a little water into a sponge or you can fill that sponge where it's ringing. He wants us to be saturated with the knowledge and the wisdom and the understanding of God till it controls us to the point of control. But it doesn't say here it automatically happens. In fact, the action of filling depends on someone else. It depends on God himself, but it depends on us putting those things into place as we learn them. So in this case, you can translate it, may God fill you. The action of filling is possible as Paul prays and depends on the object, which is God. And what's the the goal? That we would all become complete in Christ. So therefore, when Paul prays, that the Colossians and all believers may be filled with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, the end result is, where should it lead? You should be looking for these things. To become complete in Christ. To be able to walk worthy and to please the Lord in everything. And so this spiritual knowledge is practical and gives us direction about living for God and doing his will. It is not empty, useless knowledge like the false teachers valued or the contemporary teachers were teaching. These really all included in the prayer request of Paul was for enlightenment for the believer to be filled with this knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Why? In order to live life that is hard in a certain way and to be able to know you're doing it. What are we anyway? Aren't we sojourners passing through? We're not, none of us are home. If you didn't realize that as a believer, you should realize it. None of us are home. We are so, sojourners. We are pilgrims in a foreign land. We're citizens of heaven. We're heading to heaven. So while we're heading there, how are we supposed to live? He wants us to live victorious, 
wants us to live as more than conquerors. That is not a natural thing. So now we look back in Colossians and we see the purpose for these growth qualities. And if you notice in verse number 10, it says, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit and every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. So once a believer starts putting the spiritual knowledge into practice and continues to do that growth, spiritual growth actually begins. And it continues. The rest of your Christian life, you will be growing in this knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. So the request is for expanded productivity that would become a reality in every one of our lives. We go from a babe to a spiritual, a young man who starts learning the word of God and fighting Satan with it to a spiritual father who learns to walk and live by faith. That's the goals that we want in our life. So the goal of the knowledge of God's will is twofold in our scripture this morning. The first one, if you notice in verse number 10, is to bring one's life into balance. It says, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, I'll mention that word in a minute, but before you and me came to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, our lives were out of balance. Yes, even out of control. Would you agree? The metaphor of walking here that you may walk points to a certain way to act. It's used in other places in Scripture, like in Deuteronomy, it says to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and hold fast to him. Proverbs gives us this knowledge where it says that I, I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, you won't stumble or your steps won't be impeded. So in other words, there is a way to live according to the world, and we're, we're all used to that because we came out of it, and there's a way to live according to the flesh, but there's a way to live according to God's way, and that's where we're heading. The will of God is God's way. So out of our lives, we once were controlled and directed by the sinful, evil part. Now, again, our, the sister book of Colossians is Ephesians. And what did Paul say in that very well-known passage of Scripture in Ephesians 2, where he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly, what, walked according to what? The course of this world. The, the world was telling you how to walk, still telling you, Facebook, Twitter, all the media sites, they're telling you how to dress. They're telling you how to think. They're telling you what to buy. They're telling you everything, and sometimes you don't even realize it. That's what they're doing. See, that's the course of the world. Also, it says, according to the prince and power of the air, of the spirit that works in the children of disobedience, among we too all formally live, all of us live this way, in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and mind, and we're by nature, the children of wrath, even as the rest. Everybody's in the same category. We didn't really know that until we come to Scripture. And when we come to Scripture, we realize now, with this wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, God wants us to walk in a certain way. 
And he wants you to notice you're walking in that way. He wants other people to notice that you're walking in this particular way. So walk simply means to order one's steps or behavior so that it is done in a worthy manner. Now, this word worthy expresses the intended results of having been filled with the true, clear knowledge of God's will to walk worthy. To walk worthy actually literally means to have the weight of another thing or another person. And the meaning includes bringing up the other beam of the scales or to bring it into equilibrium. Just look at, think of a scale. If you have a scale, you put too much weight on one side, it's lopsided, right? It means to bring your scale into balance where you have the same weight on each side. And, of course, it's saying put yourself up against the character of Christ and make sure your life lines up with his. And as we are filled with the Spirit of God, that is a reality. When a believer acts accordingly, it shows he or she is walking in a particular sphere they never walked before. They're no longer in the world. They're in the world, but they're not of the world, and they're in Christ. They're walking in this world in Christ. In a different sphere, they're walking. They're walking as conquerors, as victorious as those who are overcomers. See, that's the way you want to live, because in this hard world we live in, that's the only way to live as a Christian. Now, if you look at Colossians for a moment, look at chapter 2, verse number 6. He uses this metaphor again. He says in verse 6 of chapter 2, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, that just assumes right there, right away, you should know how to walk. Walk in him. Well, you've got to know how to do that, right? You have to know how to walk in him. And then look at chapter 3, verse number 7. It says, And in him you also once walked when you were living in them. Now, what sins did we walk and live in? Now, go up to verse number 5 of chapter 3, and he tells us a verse... Chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly bodies, body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And then verse number 6, For it is because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. God's going to hold everybody responsible for every sin they ever committed, every act they ever lived out every word that they ever spoke, every thought that was in their mind that was against the will of God. All will be judged who are outside of Christ. And those who are Christians will be judged by how they lived after they became a believer. And then in chapter 4, verse number 5, he says this in Colossians. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. So this assumes very clearly that a Christian knows how to live. They know how to walk to those who are not in Christ yet before the world. They know how to do that. And the believer shows evidence that they are no longer walking according to the characteristics of the kingdom of darkness, but the kingdom of God's dear son. Well, that's exactly what it says in Colossians 1, verse number 13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
So the point being, when the believer grows in knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding, the results of their daily walk will have the attributes of the Lord's character in them. That the saints, the saints are to watch their manner of life and conduct, conduct that in, in a way that it weighs as much as the character of their Lord. And the Spirit of God indwelling us enables us to live this kind of lifestyle. Your lifestyle will be equal weight on both sides of the scale. Equal weight bringing equilibrium in your life, therefore having control. Right? Self-control. Right? The Spirit of God gives us. Controlled by this knowledge that comes from God. Now, just by way of a simple example... I was reading a story about a couple from the Quechua tribe in Bolivia. A man named Paulino and his wife, Aurora, had marital problems, which started over an old blanket. Her mother-in-law had given a blanket to her daughter. Aurora thought that she should have it. Well, the husband did something very dangerous, took the side of his mother, and uh, Aurora got mad and left with her one-year-old baby and her three-year-old child and walked six hours to her mother's house. Along the way, she began to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. But Satan, too, was working on her by the time she arrived at her mom's house. She wanted a divorce. See, that small matter like that? Yes, a small matter like that. A few Christians began to counsel her from God's word. They prayed for the Lord's guidance and his will to be done in this matter, and as a result of godly counsel from the word of God, Paulino and Aurora made amends. They got back together and ended up doing well. They chose to obey God's will and became more mature because of their decision. Now, I say that little story for this reason. That's very practical stuff. That's what God's asking us to do. He's asking us to do very practical things in our life. And if we can't do the simple, practical things, then you and I haven't learned a thing on how to treat people and how to treat circumstances. So this is an example of walking worthy. By using spiritual knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, which resulted in what? Pleasing the Lord, putting off sin, and bringing life into balance. That's what ought to happen. Look at Colossians 3, verse number 13. Simple, again, knowledge. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Notice, just as the Lord forgave you, you should also. How do you balance the scales? If God forgave you, and that's the knowledge that comes from God's word, I should have no problem forgiving anyone else, no matter what the offense against me. Because look at all the offenses that we had against God, right? And he forgave us. See, that not that practical, simple wisdom? Let's try to counsel someone to put some of that into practice sometimes when they're dug in against somebody. They're, it doesn't matter. You can move heaven and earth, and they're not going to budge from not forgiving that person because of what they did, right? But this says, well, then your life is out of balance still. Your life is not balanced with the character of the Lord. If it was, you know what you would do? You would be forgiving. And you would know in your mind, because I please God when I'm forgiving. 
and I act like Jesus when I'm forgiven. So this is the result. The result of a walk like this is to please God in all ways, both inward thoughts and outward actions. And that means the believer begins to act like the Lord and balance the scales that they never could balance before. So believers in Christ bear fruit, unlike the disciples of the false teachers. All they they have is rules and regulations. That's it. So this leads me to the second thing that to please the Lord, uh, or is, is to please the Lord in all kinds of ways. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, to please him in all respects. Now, if you ask yourself the question, do you please Jesus in all respects? Now, you want to, but you're probably not there yet, right? I don't know if anybody's there yet, but that's my point on how to live life, right? I want to do this. I want to be pleasing to the Lord in all respects. But there's four areas, four ways to please the Lord he gives us in Scripture. In verse number 10, he says this, the believer grows bearing all kinds of fruits such as this, the fruit of good works, verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. What does it say in Ephesians? That we are created in Christ for good works. So remember again that good works, if Christ saved you from sin, then, the, then and only then do you have good works that please the Lord. Everything else, you may have been good in the eyes of the world, but it was not good works that pleases the Lord. And of course, good works can be as simple as giving a cup of water to someone who needs it, right? Because you're considering, I'm doing this because I'm a believer and I know the Lord. And then, of course, in verse number 11, the fruit of steadfastness and patience. For attaining all the steadfastness and patience is another way that we please the Lord, all right? Now, steadfastness and patience really does assume something, that life is hard. If I have to be steadfast in something and patient in something, that means I have to endure something hard. Now, keep that in mind, but there's also in verse number 12 another thing, the fruit of joyful thankfulness. The end of verse number 12 where he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. But if you notice in verse number 11, the last word, it says joyously. That means I bear with people and circumstances under pressure with this inner attitude of joy. Now, you may be able to deal with things for long term, but you probably haven't done it with a continuous attitude of joy and thanksgiving to God. So this is supernatural. This is only comes to us by the Lord. And so that's what we want. It must really be clear to us. At this point, that conversion to Christ brings with it a new capacity with which we know how to serve God in righteousness. The life of God now within the believer begets a new nature, and believers, for believers it is paramount that you grasp what God has done for you and in you, and it really should begin to resonate in us that it's in principle, it's a principle that is already true in you, that's given to us by the Spirit of God, but we have to grow in that principle. Also, pleasing the Lord shows up in verse number 10 in 
increased knowledge of God. Notice what it says, increasing in the knowledge of God. Ultimately, most of the troubles in the church, according to the teaching of the epistles, stem somewhere or another from a lack of knowledge and understanding of God and his will. That's where most of the epistles are written from, to to correct some wrong thinking, some wrong behavior in the church. Right? Why? Because the culture has dictated how people live. Your own flesh, fleshly nature has, has dictated what you desire and how you live. Satan is behind all that, dictating on how you should live, pulling all the strings. And of course, he doesn't want you to know he's doing that. But he is. So somewhere or another, this lack of knowledge and lack of understanding of God is out of whack. It's out of balance. And remember, theology is the study of God. A person, studying a person, not just abstracts truths about the person. It's not really knowing a number of things about God like he is great or mighty or majestic because the demons have knowledge of that greatness, that might, and that majesty of God. But where does it lead them? It leads them to trembling, and it should lead people to trembling if they know that. But one can have a deep interest in theology without much knowledge of God. They can read many Christian books on theology and apologetics and a variety of subjects and yet have very little knowledge of who God is and what his will is. They can really even sometimes lead a Bible study group and write a Christian blog and have certain knowledge about God without much personal, intimate knowledge with him because the true knowledge in the word of God of God is to grow in a personal, intimate knowledge where God is real to us and we are very conscious every day of his presence in our life. We live before his eyes. And when we live there, believe me, we don't live there in fear. We live there with steadfastness coupled with joy and thanksgiving. I'm enjoying life, not because I have everything I wanted or ever wanted. I'm enjoying life because of what Christ has done for me. And right now, he's given me another day to live, and I'm just going to be thankful for it. Practical is the knowledge of God's will. Practical stuff. So as a Christian takes in the truth, both understanding and his heart expanded, toward God and his moral power is multiplied to live a righteous life. Bearing fruit and growing is accomplished by means of of this knowledge of God. And the Christian grows by the knowledge and only a steady diet of the spiritual food from the word of God will continue the growth. So think that the Lord is to be a person who can be thanked. And we, what he asks us to do, we also, he also enables us to do. God never asks us to do anything that is impossible. He always asks us to do that he's going to empower us to do. That's why we can know how to walk. We can be empowered to actually walk the way the Bible says we should walk. That's what pleases him. But I want you to notice that it shows up in pleasing the In pleasing the Lord, it shows up in the strength given by God. In verse number 11 of chapter 1, it says, Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So 
this is not strength that is self-generated by the power of the force of someone's will or their determination, but this is strength imparted by the Holy Spirit. God's power for strength is provided to move a believer into a certain quality of a kind of life. That, that person's a believer. Well, how do you know that? Well, not only by the way they talk, but by the way they live. See, that's what should be something, observation that is for all of us. And so Paul requests for in, uh, enablement with power is so the saint can shine forth the attributes of Christ. And what attributes... Does the person shine forth? If you look in verse number 11, notice what it says. Strengthened with power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Let me stop there. So where is the Spirit of God taking us? To learn how to be steadfast. Here's, Here's a communicable attribute of God. And Christians are a mirror of this characteristic. And the word steadfastness means to remain under. And this word right here always applies to things, not persons. This word. Things like what? Persecutions, hindrances, temptations, conflicts. It is the ability to remain under the pressure of circumstances without losing character and without going out of balance. To remain quiet, unmurmuring, not grumbling under your breath, submissive and enduring. Why? Because you know God providentially knows the circumstances you're in. And obviously, he allows you to be there. So how am I going to respond to it while I'm there? That's how I know how to act. It's not when things are going good. And when you got everything you want, no way. That's not that. You can't be measured by that. You got to be measured by when things get tough and life throws curveballs at you. How are you going to respond? Now, you may fail initially, but I think as a believer, you'll discover that you have failed and that you don't want to fail. So you come and say, Lord, this situation that you called me to, I'm in it now, but. You know, I didn't do so well, but I want to get back to having the knowledge of your will, wisdom, and understanding to next time, or even now in the remaining trial that I'm going through, to do it in a way that I please you. And then notice in Colossians 1 of 11, what's the next thing you attain to? To attain to all steadfast and patience. Now, the saint also is given power to hold out long against provocations and people who provoke. So this one is used of people. Patience always refers to persons, people who are hard to get along with, people who are stubborn and hard-headed and abusive. Steadfastness and patience are two of the greatest characteristics which are mirrored by the Christian as they grow in Christ. You want to know how well you're doing when a trial comes, when 
hard times come, how do you respond to it? You go to the medicine cabinet, take out the nearest bottle of whatever painkillers you have, and dump a few down so you can go to sleep. You rush to that bottle of whiskey or that bottle that's going to soothe some of those things in your heart. Do you run to some activity that fills your void when things go wrong? Where do you run to? See, that's it. When the trials come, you have everything you need and I need to be able to respond to all trials this way. But again, the saint also is given power to hold out long against these provocations and decisive actions regarding people How, notice in the end of verse number 11, joyously. This is the thing that gets me. It says in the Greek, with joy. So it's not when things are going good, but when things are hard in circumstances and difficult with people, do I still have this joy inside my heart? I should be falling apart right now, but I'm not. Why? Were you ever in that position? And you say, you know what? That's the joy that no one can take away. Matter of fact, it is a joy that only Christians experience, that God gives you, and it's miraculous, and it's divine. And he allows you in that circumstances to be calm and to actually be joyful and thankful. And then I want you to notice one last thing. Here in verse number 11, this, this pleasing the Lord really does show up in our joyfulness, our heartfelt joy and our thankfulness to the Father, where it says in that last part of verse 11, to, to respond to all this joyously. Remember, when Jesus looked at the cross, right, what did he consider it? Joy, right? He considered it joy. Why? Because he was looking past the cross. The only way we're going to maintain our joy is if we know we're pilgrims in a foreign land heading to heaven, and what what do we have in heaven? We have an inheritance. We are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We're in the kingdom of light. We're heading into the presence of God, and there will be joy unspeakable and full of glory. So in both situations, believers are not to make a long face about things, all their perseverance and long-suffering is to be accompanied by joy and not by some sickly smile behind, which really reveals a weak heart, but really long, that longs for relief. So if a believer lives with this joy while under pressure with things and holding out long with people, it will definitely catch the attention of others, and at the same time, it will get the conclusion to our life that was out of control, to please the Lord. I can know how to please the Lord in all things. Here are the reasons why. I'm growing. I have joy. I I am growing in great patience, great steadfastness. I'm increasing in the knowledge of God, and God is pleased with all those things. And that's something that you and I should want and desire. So remember... You have a pile of bricks. 
which contains all kinds of Bible-based facts and information about the knowledge of God's will. But to build something out of those bricks, you need wisdom. And to practically use what you made, you need understanding. Wisdom is the mortar and sand and water which holds the individual bricks together that give potential and structure. Without wisdom, you would not know how to take all the information and facts of God's will and make something useful out of them. Understanding takes the bricks, the sand, the mortar, the water, and the structure becomes strong and useful. And in this case, we joyfully construct our lives by the knowledge of God while he enables us all the way along the road till we get to heaven. And until then, we mature more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what God's doing with every single one of us. Now, if you know nothing of those things, then you have to say, am I a believer at all? Because only believers know these things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word again. It's pretty awesome, Lord be able to pick up the word of God and see this is what pleases the Lord. This is where we're to grow to. This is how it looks. And thank you, Lord, that it's very practical. We know when we're doing it. And I pray, Lord, that we would be more conscious of it every single day of our life. So, Lord, my prayer for us is the same prayer Paul had that we as a congregation would grow in our knowledge, our wisdom, and understanding so we would learn how to please you in all things and that we would grow in our knowledge, we would maintain our joy, and that we would be steadfast in circumstances and patience with people. And in doing so, you would be pleased with all of it. And your name would be glorified, and in the interim, we would be maturing in Christ. So the scales of our life will not be out of balance, but will be in perfect balance. Thank you, Lord, for these things. I pray in your name. Amen.